Hey folks, welcome to Hope Labs. This is Reverend Tony Lee, and this is a series of conversations I'm having with thought leaders um, all over this nation. And I am here today with the Chief of Police of Prince George's County, Maryland, Chief Hank Stowinski, my dear brother. Hey brother. My Always great to see you. Oh no, you can, you call, I'm here. Well, we are grateful. Now, um, f folks um, will need to realize that uh, our relationship isn't a relationship that kind of has just happened mm -hmm. as a pastor connected with a chief of police, but really it's a relationship of uh, uh, quite a bit of years. I'm not going to date ourselves. <laughs> many well, years. put it in context. Um, not from someplace else. Right. Melvin C. High is our sheriff now, was our chief of police. And we both had the opportunity under his guidance to participate in our first sort of set of national conversations on policing matters with Police Executive Research Forum. Took us both down there, seated us there. My joke is always that someone thought Chief had daycare issues and he brought his kids. <laughs> he brought the kids. Yeah, because so mm -hmm. at that point we both looked like we were about 16. We really did. Now we look like we're 20. <laughs> <laughs> and I received that. And I received that totally. Uh, but it started there and that's that's more than 20 years ago. Yeah. And and at every step, as and I was a lieutenant, at every step, we found each other in community events. We found each other in community service. Mm -hmm. We found each other's in uh, opportunities for advocacy around the direction the county needed to go into. That's right. And then the Baker administration was transformative in a lot of ways. The opportunities that Mr. Baker gave the police department to to reinvent itself. And then, of course, my first question was always, well, where's Tony? And, and how can we get partnered with Community of Hope as we evolve? Because what's always been important to me is something that Chief High taught me, which is you police to a community standard. Right. The community has to define that standard. There's laws, there's best practices, but they don't go far enough. It's not enough to say to a community, well, this is a best practice, so we're going to do it. The, the whole art in my mind of effective policing is to understand the community standard by engagement, That's right. by being here in the church, by being in the basement of a community center, by being in somebody's home, doing that constantly. So you have a real tangible sense of what that community standard is. And then you structure your strategies to that standard so that the community is not just accepting of how you're policing, but they support how you're policing because they see themselves reflected in it. That's exactly it. Now, talk a little bit because folks who are watching um, may not have a context for, for Prince George's County. Okay. Um, talk, t talk a little bit about not just where the police department is now, but where it has been. Because I grew up in this county. Of course. And the police department and the way it is now is not necessarily um, its relationship um, that it had the community before. I mean, um, when I was growing up. Uh, the thing that we knew was watch out for Prince George's County. No, it's leave. true. Um, so just talk a little bit about kind of that process and transformation and kind of where it has been and kind of where it is now. So <clears throat> I'll begin where the transformation of our community began. Between 1965 and 1975, post-World War II, the federal government expanded rapidly. There are components of our federal government that find their origin at that point in time. And then a lot of the existing infrastructure expanded and there weren't affordable housing options for those federal employees who were coming from around the nation, let alone the turnover with respect to elected leadership, because each elected member has staff where are they going to live. 
So between 65 and 75, there were opportunities in Prince George's County to accommodate that need for housing. And we saw a huge influx in population. And in my opinion, what we didn't do well over that period of time was to accommodate the need for policing, for fire and EMS, and for our schools. And so those systems became quickly overburdened. The advantage our fire department has and had was the volunteers. So they were able to grow based on the volunteers funding apparatus and stations in addition to the sworn full-time fire staff. The police department, I would suggest, is contemporary now, and we'll go into that because that's really your question. And the schools, I think, are now at a point with County Executive also Brooks, where the demand for the real funding, right? This is the transformation we underwent about beginning about 10 years ago. The demand for real dollars that are needed to have a progressive and effective police department, a progressive and effective school system, that's where we find ourselves now in this moment. The school system is doing well, but the future is far brighter. So let's talk about policing in Prince George's County from that period. It was a small department. There was not a planned strategy for growth and expansion, and we weren't part of the national policing dialogue in a, in a substantive way. What we are now is associated with Police Executive Research Forum with IACP. Um, in a week, I'm going back up to Harvard to be part of that public safety convening, but I've also been invited to speak at the Health and Human Services convening um, and to speak to the county executives from around the nation around the things that we do differently in Prince George's County. So we're engaged in that conversation, and it doesn't end with me. The deputies, the majors, my chief of staff, Tony Shartner, is traveling to Vancouver with two more of my team members Saturday morning to participate in an international conference on policing. So what we didn't have was the advantage of perspective. Right. And we went out to get that perspective, to look at best practices. The memorandum of agreement and consent decree, that we're one of the few departments that have entered and come out of one over the course of five years, was also a key tool. Now talk about that a little bit, about what, because mm -hmm. um, folks don't understand what that is and, and, and what brought that about or the challenges that brought that, because that was a, a federal type of piece, correct? Uh, absolutely, and, and that's where I'm going to try to land the entire concept. That period of time, 65, 75, up to DOJ, is the period where we experience Department of Justice, Department of Justice the, and again, the consent decree and memorandum of agreement around force and canine prim primarily. That period from 75 up until the beginning of the 2000s is where we're experiencing the issues that you raised with our use of force, with our deployment of dogs, with our relationship with community. And some of it speaks to an older mindset of policing that says that you're here to impose the law and to maintain order as opposed to enforce the law and to foster community. And so the methods of applying force, the tools that we had, when I became a police officer in 1992, we had a firearm and we had a stick, essentially. Mm -hmm. And now you see us with conducted energy weapons or tasers. You see us with ASPA batons, which are a better and more effective tool. You see us with OC spray. These less lethal methods of controlling people are more effective and safer for both the officer and the individual who is resisting than essentially a street fight. Right. And so moving away from the street fight and moving away from imposing the law to fostering community and to using less lethal and more effective tools for everybody's benefit. Right. And then you go through the DOJ process. DOJ said, 
We've identified challenges in Prince George's County with force, mm -hmm. with the use of canine, with some of the mechanisms of internal investigation and the outcomes. And so myself and the current assistant chief, I, I believe part of why we have the positions we have now is because we are the ones who reinvented the whole policy system mm -hmm. and rewrote all of the policies to bring them into compliance with best standards in 2005. Once that was done, we came into compliance with those policies. So now at the other end of the DOJ process, we are focused in equal measure on how to police effectively and progressively. But coming back to Chief High's influence during that period of time, how to do that according to the community standard that I talked about. So DOJ was a very valuable tool for us because we were operating under structures that dated back 30 and 40 years, but they weren't contemporary. Right. And then what happens with the beginning of the Baker administration in 2011, as county, executive. as county executive, Mr. Baker appoints Chief McGaw, and then I become a deputy under Chief McGaw and his chief of staff. We start restructuring again. Right. And, and to be honest with you, I just came from a meeting mm -hmm. where I had a conversation with my team about the next restructuring. Right. Because there's this notion, Nike had a great slogan a few years ago, there is no finish line. Mm -hmm. You're not done inventing the police department. As the community transforms, as the infrastructure changes, you've got to adapt and you've got to evolve. And so all of that restructuring and then that equal measure focus on understanding what that community standard is and then developing contemporary strategies. And we invent a lot of them, right. to be honest with you. We don't, we don't just go and see what somebody else is doing and then implement that. We've been about the business of inventing these strategies. Chief on the go is an example of that. The work that you and I are doing around this yellow tape initiative with Dr. Marsh is part of that, doing something different, being involved. And then, and as you know, you'll find me on the street more often than you'll find me in the office. And that comes back to having a palpable sense of where the community's mind is. And then again, developing and evolving the department so that the two are in lockstep with one another, as opposed to moving in different directions. So, yeah. You were talking about McGaw and, and this whole community kind of um, um, perspective, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was remembering times in which when this neighborhood was very different, this mm -hmm. neighborhood, the crime was much higher, et cetera. And we would go with you all and do these community walks in which the church would interact with the community and you all. I remember one time, we would, um, a couple of times, we would buy up an ice cream truck. Mm -hmm. And me and you and the chief would be walking through and handing out free ice cream. Yep. And the community would start walking along with us and we'd end up up here and have hot dogs and, you know, those kinds of pieces. Ways in which we're connecting community with police department um, in non-confrontational ways so that we could better do kind of the work. Um, talk about kind of what it takes to connect community with police and also how the faith community can play a part in that. The paradigm that existed, I won't speak for any place else, but the paradigm that existed in Prince George's County going back 20 years ago was that our interaction with community was as a product of our work. And so we interact with the community every day. What are you talking about, right? We're out there answering calls for service. The problem is, and it should be self-evident, is that you're talking to people in a moment of crisis, right? They're in need of something because they've been the victim of a crime. Maybe they're the suspect of a crime they're a witness to an accident, something has happened that needs police services. That's not the time to be forming a relationship, right? Because emotions are high, because 
people are concerned about their safety, they're traumatized by whatever happened, you're not connecting with somebody in that space, right? The time to make a new friend is not when you're taking them out of a car where they've had an accident. It's like, so tell me what you like. You know, this is, this is not a, but the misconception, and again, it should have been self-evident, but it wasn't. The misconception was that was our engagement with the community. Well, that's not a good template to, to build a relationship off of. And so the key to it, and again, going back to, you'll find me on the street more often than you'll find me in the office is, there's nothing going on, right? We're walking through the neighborhood, there's nothing going on. Right. There's not sirens, nobody's running away from anything. And, and so you have an opportunity to genuinely interact with somebody and there's no, there's no pressure, right? right? And so in that space, you're talking to them and people quickly realize, hey, you're just a human being, right? When you're responding to that call for service, you arrive on the scene of something as an authority figure. You're there to restore order or mitigate a crime or whatever the case may be. Now I'm just Hank, right? And you know me, throughout this county, people just know me as Hank. Right. And that's where the relationship begins because the reality is that the vast majority of people, we have a million people in Prince George's County. It's 486 square miles. But the vast majority of that population will never actually interact with one of our officers, believe it or not. And then the most likely scenario for them to meet one of those police officers is on a traffic stop. And so a lot of focus is on how we engage and respect the community in those spaces. And then the rest of it, because we're, it's very unlikely that they're going to ha be a victim of a crime and even less likely now than before, right? Um, is meeting that person and then providing them a lens through the which they can see the police department, right? If the lens is Tony and Hank were walking down the street and we had ice cream and we talked for a minute about, you know, Hank's daughter or Tony's dad or whatever happens, you know, in the in that conversation that precipitates it. Now there's this lens to through which to see the police as people, right. as opposed to, yeah, I got something stolen, guy came, wrote a report, he left, but I haven't got my thing back. No, that's totally it. That's totally it. Now, it, you, you talked, you made, you intimated to it, but I, I want it to really be heard. We haven't just felt in this county kind of a shifting in the kind of feelings between community and police, um, but we also have watched a drastic decrease in crime. Talk a little bit about the numbers. So go back to 2011 when we started this conversation, and I think there's two things in equal measure that bring us to this point. The first I touched on is the restructuring of the police department and making the structures through which police services get delivered contemporary to the community in 2011. And like I said, we, we continue to evolve it throughout Chief McGaw's tenure. And I just came from a meeting again where we're evolving it yet again. So that's half of it. And, and in that piece is the strictly policing strategy. It's using data. It's running the department in real time. We have three different forms that we use hourly to adjust and reallocate resources and to be ahead of crime. And so it's prevention oriented. We're not trying to catch the person who committed the crime. We're trying to prevent the crime from happening. The other half is TNI. The police are enthusiastic amateurs in and infrastructure. Okay, so Transforming Neighborhoods Initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, myself and Brad Seaman were the architects of that for Mr. Baker. And what Transforming Neighborhoods is, is a multidisciplinary approach to the environmental factors that can lead to crime. Mm -hmm. There are public policy issues and infrastructure issues that can lead to or foster crime. And the police, as a function of just apprehending people, can't impact that. Right. 
So transforming neighborhoods is about having people who are subject matter experts in infrastructure, street lights, traffic lights, sidewalks, and people who are subject matter experts in the social services. So education, uh, expectant mothers, healthy babies. How can we help the elder community to navigate as age and geography play a role in their lives? Those are all things where we're making community stronger as a group, and that leads to less opportunity for crime too. And so all of that packaged together in 2011, there were more than 100 crimes in Prince George's County every 24 hours. And we, we drill this down, as you know, to a specific number on a daily basis. As I sit here today, we've gone from 103 in stair-step fashion to this is April 3rd of 2019, and we're at 36 crimes a day. Wow, so from 103 to 36. Yes. And how many years? Since 2011. 2011. So now we're in our, we're going into our ninth years. year. Wow. Going into, Not yes, into, into our ninth year. Wow. Wow. So, and again, the thing that has to be understood is that, and I've been approached a number of times, you know, post-Ferguson, you know, how do you, how do you go to a community relationship where if you have an officer get involved in a shooting, the, the dialogue is about understanding what happened and explaining it as opposed to people into conflict immediately. And what I've always said is that, you know, if, if you aren't there now, you're two or three years away from being there if you start today, because it's, it's, there's no switch to be flipped. It's about having hundreds of conversations with six or 12 people at a time. It's about coming to services, but it's also about walking the streets. It's about tearing up signs that people are littering the neighborhood with. It's about you know picking up some trash. It's about sitting in 7-Eleven for a minute and just see who comes in. And then word of that spreads quickly. And the thing that I will say, and I always ask the community to do, and and I think there's sometimes overreach. A lot of people say, you know, you should thank a police officer. I don't ask the community to thank a police officer. There are parts of our community still where people don't feel the police are playing the appropriate role. I'm not asking somebody to thank somebody if they don't agree with what's happening. But I do encourage everybody to greet one another. And it comes back to the walks. Right? We saw this time and time again. Some guy's walking down the street and, and he's, you know, pretty distanced, pretty cold. Right. right? You smile and say hi. And then, you know, they melt and they smile and they say hi, right. right? And then something good begins to happen. And part of the challenge with the humanity and policing is people see us as the authority figure and, and they don't know that we're just people like them. But once you smile and say hello, just greet one another. And that's all I ever ask anybody to do. I only ask the community to greet the police officers. I ask the police officers to greet the community. And then from that, something good happens. And, and that's part of it too. But we're uh, we're approaching a place where crime in Prince George's County in the aggregate will have been reduced by two thirds over a decade. Wow. And exactly half of that is this multidisciplinary approach. Exactly half of that is just restructuring good strategy, good use of data and running the department in real time, not launching an initiative and coming back to it. And then at the end of all of that, and this is the opportunity that you provided me uh, just two weeks ago to come in and say to the community, look, here's where our challenges are, right? This is a community update. Our challenges are not in violent crime right now. Right. Our challenges are not with robberies. Our challenges are around property they, crime. They used to be. They did. They used to be. And there's that misperception still right. that, that attaches. 
But, you know, we've seen other communities. I, I often look at the, the dynamic with Harlem in New York City mm -hmm. and the way that community has evolved. And now it's viewed very differently than it was back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of timeframes I encourage people to use when they start thinking about how you transform community, because it's not going to happen in a year. It's not going to happen in three years. But if you do it well and you're persistent and you have the support of a Rashern Baker or an Angela also Brooks, then that kind of transformative change occurs over the course of a decade or so. Now let me ask you this, I think that's important that you're talking about like the transformation of a Harlem or some of these other places. So Prince George's County is a suburb of Washington, D.C. It is. Washington, D.C. has seen a um, significant amount of gentrification. Um, Washington, D.C. Has, has literally transformed. And I think one of the most current reports uh, deals with the fact that uh, the D.C. area, um, they can identify 20,000 families that have been displaced. Mm -hmm. And so then you have this whole piece of what they call suburbanization of poverty. They've been moving to places where housing is more affordable. Um, if you look at the transformation that has happened here, Many people are seeing that kind of transformation and lowering in crime, but in some ways it's as a result of people being displaced or as a result of gentrification. In Prince George's County it's very different though, because you're still you still have the same people, not just the same people, but you also have a population of people who have come from DC who have then come into the county. And so where most people would think the crime would have gone up in Prince George's County because you had Pete, uh, you had an increase in some of the poverty of the county mm. um, because people who had a little bit less were coming into the county. Um, really, we've watched crime go down. Talk a little bit about that because it goes against all the anecdotal stuff people would think. People would think right. if poor people are coming here, people are being displaced, if, 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 if projects are being torn down in D.C. and people are coming to Prince George's County, then Prince George's County is going to get the crime that's left D.C. But what we've seen is we've been able to integrate people, but also though having healthy communities. I think when we look at the Prince George's County experience, one of the fundamental assumptions around our nation right now is got to be questioned. And you touched on it, which is this sort of the criminalization of poverty, mm. the association of people of limited means and crime. Poor people aren't criminals. Poor people are just poor people. Mm. And that comes a little bit back to that T&I piece about how do you provide people with skills and opportunities and education? Um, how do you as a, as a police leader support the, the county leader's vision for economic vitality mm -hmm. by going, and I'm, I'm gonna be doing some of this with, with our new county executive, Ms. Also Brooks. Mm -hmm. I did some of it with Mr. Baker, explaining that we have a method by which we arrive at these crime reductions right. and to encourage the opportunity for business. But let's come back to that. I was on Howard University Radio just the other night, and they pointed out that the vast majority of those families that you just spoke of that had been displaced are now living in Prince George's County. That doesn't mean our crime's gonna go up. And if you assume that's the case, mm -hmm. it can lead to bad strategies, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, we gotta get into this neighborhood because we've got these folks and you're, you're tacitly criminalizing poverty. Mm -hmm. We meet people where they are. And then we look at the things that are driving that crime. So the whole TNI initiative was about how do you remove the environmental things that might lead to that? So bad infrastructure, bad planning, maybe traffic now in a roadway has overwhelmed the capacity, the safety measures that were in place when they built that 20 years ago or more. So let's address those things, let's fix those things. Let's look at how we can engage elder, youth, 
social services, enrollment and programs, education to provide people with opportunity. And the other piece of it is that relationship with community, right? And it all comes back to sort of where we started with this community standard. People don't want crime in their community. Right. They don't want dirty streets. They don't want not to be able to go and get healthy food for their family, you know, within a reasonable distance. Right. And when government is responsive to those needs, people adopt that community standard. They see that this is a safe place because we're not going to tolerate trash. We're not going to tolerate um, underserved communities. And those things all combine to create opportunities. And of course, when you have more opportunities for healthy food, what do you have? You got jobs, right? Because right? the food's got to get there. Right. The people got to package it and sell it. Right. Um, and all those things feed together. Uh, but again, and I said this to my team when we were on our way down to meet with you, all of what's accomplished, the French Orange County experience, is deceptively simple. But it's about saying that if we had this many crimes on this day a year ago, then our goal today is just to have one fewer. And if you do that consistently, you have less crime. The, the trick is to look at the opportunities. And it's kind of an economic proposal for us. Where is the greatest return on our investment of resources? Because I'm not sitting here telling you that I've got more than enough police officers to do this. Right. Um, we do this through extraordinary efforting over time, time and a half, bringing back full-time employees so they work a shift and then they do something extra. Uh, but we also put them in the places where we're going to get the biggest return on that investment, where things have overrepresented themselves, property crime, violent crime, or fatal collisions. And then when we form strategy, right, it comes back to not who's in a neighborhood, but what is that community experiencing? We don't look at socioeconomic indicators when we're looking at and again, you said it, and it's true, anecdotal, right. right? The assumption is that's where our problems are. Well, when you actually have good data, you know where the problems are. Right. And then every strategy that we implement, because resources aren't infinite, we address two of those three things. So our strategies will either be addressing fatal collisions and violent crime, violent crime and property crime, property crime or fatal collisions, some combination, two of those three things are gonna be there. Right. The intersection of roadways with commercial establishments, the intersection of parking lots with traffic, the intersection of places where cars are broken into and maybe a convenience store that's getting robbed. We specifically put those things together. And the last thing I'll say on that front is a lot of times, I think we overemphasized the violent crime and ignored the property crime. But there's always been, based on my research, and our data wasn't great 20 years ago, but I've got a lot of good data, specifically from the last 10 years. There's a 10 to one ratio of property crime to violent crime in Prince George County. From an economic impact, that's where your biggest issues are. But if you're artful in how you allocate your resources, what you find is that if you've got 10 property crimes to every violent crime, if you can put your resources where they're overrepresented and knock that down to three or five or seven, you're not going to prevent everything. Right, right. You're never going to prevent everything. And I'm very frank with the community about that. But if you can knock that down to three or five or seven, what you find is you get a violent crime reduction for free. Mm. Because the people who are out there doing that are the same people. They're, they're moving in the same circles looking for opportunities to do the robbery. Right. But if they see us aggressively working in an area where we've had property crime, they'll choose not to commit that robbery. Mm. And then the other piece 
is, and this is where I'll leave it, that community standard, if the community standard is, you know, look, things are tough and, and there's not a lot of engagement with the police. I'm not seeing a lot of patrol. So if there's an opportunity for me to take something and get away with it, I might, right? right? What I call a criminal dilettante. Right. The community standard in Prince George County is now that that's not acceptable. Right. So once you take those criminal dilettantes out of the picture, mm -hmm. you're left with the folks that communities have police departments to address in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're folks that it don't matter what you say or do, right? right? Their, their view of the world and the society is that it's there for my taking, right. Right? right? And those are the folks that you want your police department focusing on. Right. And I, I will suggest to you that at the end of this whole process to come back to where we started, 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 crimes a year last year, at the end of the year, we had 16,099, right? So again, that reduction, um, that is only as a result of the community adopting that standard and saying this is acceptable, calling the police when they see something that they're suspicious about. But they're not gonna do that if they don't know us, right? right? We're just another faceless government entity. Right. And that's where the relationship building comes in. But that community standard saying, look, that was how it was here 10 or 20 years ago, but I'm not gonna settle for that anymore. And then the public trust and that community standard is what leads to this moment that we're having now. And again, we're not done. We're always gonna be evolving, but we're also able to get even better results in my mind right. as we continue. Last thing, and thank you so much. It's been great to have you here too. Um, I feel so formal. Hope Labs, how we do it. <laughs> Last thing is this. For faith leaders who are watching, for community leaders who are watching, um, if you were giving them just a couple of insights on how to attempt to engage their local law enforcement leaders to try to uh, be able to foster some of the relationships, some of the ways of doing things that we've been able to do, what would they be? So you may have seen a number of years ago, there was a study out that said that people who flossed had a lower incidence of cancer. Mm. And you look at that and you say to yourself, so flossing your teeth prevents cancer? Mm. No. When you drill into that study, what we found was that people who took the time mm -hmm. to be deliberate about their care mm -hmm. and flossing takes time, mm -hmm. they were more likely to go to a doctor when they had a pain. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to exercise. They're more likely to be concerned about their diet. And your question is about the faith community. What I know is that the people who are faithful and participative in church and the activities around and outside of church are more engaged in community than other folks. They just are. And so if you're going to set about that process that I alluded to earlier, where you feel as though your community and your police department are sort of in a, in a dynamic that's not positive, you need to start with your faith community because you as a pastor have tremendous influence on how people view their community. You talked about the troubles here. Mm -hmm. This community is 180 degrees different than it was when you started your work. You're responsible for that. Tony Lee's responsible for that. But you have marshaled the resources of this community and the minds of this community to see a better place and you've led them there. You and your, your peers in the faith community have that transformative ability. Our relationship allows me to speak to people about the things that are of value in reducing crime and fostering economic vitality and all the things that we've just spent the time talking about. And there's no other group than the faithful who you're going to have a bigger or quicker impact with. 
because they take the time to worry about their spirit. They take the time to worry about their neighbor. They take their time to come and, and be in conversation around youth ministry, elder ministry, all the kinds of things that are happening in our houses of worship. And they are folks who, you know, it's, it's discipleship to some extent, right? right? right. And, and when they see the relationship that you and I have fostered, and then we begin to, to mirror that relationship with people in their community, police officers, police leaders in their community, then, you know, Hank and Tony become Ann and Jim. It becomes Cedric and Tammy. It becomes whatever it becomes, but now it begins to grow and grow and grow. And so I'll conclude by saying that if, if you find yourself where you're needing to transform that relationship, the place you begin is in your house's worship. And the other thing I will say is that you, if, if you're the police leader in this conversation, don't wait for them to come to you, wow. right? You've got to go. I, I was, you know, I was just here two weeks ago. Um, I make regular visits throughout the faith community, but I've also been in the mosque right. a dozen times praying with the Imam. Right. Uh, I've been to temple. I've had all of the rabbis into headquarters to have conversations. Uh, we look at things like what just happened in New Zealand, right. but then we compare them to things like Orlando, Pulse, and Las Vegas. Um, you know, violence, regardless of how anybody who commits it chooses to rationalize it, mm -hmm. is the problem. Right. It creates fear. The, the Muslim community in Prince George's County right now is, is feeling very sensitive, right. rightly so, about this issue because of New Zealand. But the, the next morning I was at the mosque with the Imam talking about these issues and standing with them. And, and you've been a part of that conversation. So if you're the police leader in this conversation and you feel as though you need to foster that kind of relationship building and, and you want to begin that transformative process, you need to be the one to just show up and say to pastor, say to father, say to rabbi, say to imam, and then go from there. Last thing, well, this is my favorite, one of my favorites. I've got all kinds of stories about you. <laughs> all kinds. Because it's been a long time. A long time. I, I think one of my favorite moments, or, or one of the things that spoke to me about your perspective, most helpful, I was in Florida. Mm -hmm. I was in Florida. I was driving up to the airport. I'd been somewhere. And I'm driving back and was playing some music and my foot got a little heavy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm riding up the road, foot gets a little heavy and I get pulled over by the police in Florida. And I'm scared to pieces. Um, you know, a lot of things have happened, et cetera, et cetera. I'm in Florida, it's the middle of the night, I'm nervous. The officer comes up and it was if me and the officer were having two sets of conversations. We were having the verbal conversation, and then we we're having a Jedi conversation. <laughs> um, so, you know, a mental kind of conversation. So, you know, he pulls up, you know, of course, then he pulls me over. I got both hands on the steering wheel, you know, don't let him leave, all that kind of stuff. Windows rolled down. He, he comes, hello, officer, how are you doing today? You know, my most cheerful kind of a thing. 
he then speaks back to me in his most cheerful kind of voice. And what I hear him saying, what I'm saying is, Austin, look, I ain't got no problems. And I hear him saying in his most kind of cheerful way, hey, and I don't have no problems. This can be cool. Let's just navigate this. We know what we have to do. And we talked and we had this real kind of good interaction. Um, I get a ticket, um, but I deserve the ticket. It was cool. I get the ticket. So as soon as I'm rolling off, I get a call from you. It was like God had you call me or something. I get this call from you and you were actually calling me because there was something happening, a, a, a riot or some kind of incident. It was something happening yep. somewhere yep. in the nation. And you were calling me to ask me, was I seeing this, what my thoughts were, et cetera. And so I tell you the story about me and the police. And I tell you how excited I am about this really great intervention interaction with this police officer. And you get upset. Right. And I'm like, what are you upset about? And you tell me because I should be mad. And you're mad that I'm not mad. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not mad. I had this really good interaction with the police officer. This was a good day. And you said, I'm mad. Uh, you said you were upset because as a citizen, I should be upset about getting a ticket, whether I deserve it or not. Because you should just be upset you got a ticket. Just, oh man, I got a ticket. I said, but instead of being upset that you got a ticket, you're just happy you didn't get shot. Right. And you said that you shouldn't have to live in a way in which you get a ticket and you're leaving just happy you didn't get shot. Right. That it should be fair enough for everybody that you should be able to be upset for getting a ticket. And from that, that was the most um, insightful kind of a moment for me because I realized that I had internalized the dysfunction mm -hmm. and that there was a higher standard that we could ascribe to in policing in this nation, a nation basically in which everybody could be upset about getting a ticket. That's right. Um, and, and so I think that was profound in the way that you looked at it and shaped it. You know, I, my degrees are in the sciences. I'm, I'm a scientist by training, but, but I study history, right? And what I find offensive are, are those instances in a free society where people feel like they're subjects and if you're subjected to anything or anyone then you're not free right. right and and that's what this is this is the the best flawed attempt at a free society that humanity's ever seen and our role in that is to ensure those freedoms not to be perceived as an obstacle to those freedoms right so Tony Lee should be able to drive around anywhere he wants to, too fast. Now, you, and you have a certain degree of self-awareness realizing, right. yeah, I deserve a ticket, right. Right? right? Some people don't come to that realization. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, it's troubling to me, and this is what we've got to change, and this is how we change it, right? And we're doing that work, you and I, both here and, and elsewhere. Uh, but that's what's got to change, and people have to be... Uh, in that mindset, coming back to that community standard of, look, I deserve to have the exact same respect as anybody else. I expect the same level of safety as anybody else, regardless of anything else. And that's what I expect from you. But as part of that dynamic, I also have to respect you as a person, right. as an authority figure, right? And there's got to be accommodations made on both sides about how those interactions occur mm -hmm. but at the end of it you should expect a certain level of service and respect right. but the officer should also expect a certain level of respect right. and dignity right. uh, because they do have a job that they're doing on behalf of everybody right. um, and I think if we can get 
closer and closer and closer to balancing that equation in a free society. I think that's what the promise of this nation has always been. And I think that's what I have been and you have been working towards in Prince George's County. And then it goes from there. Thanks, bud. Yeah. Have a great one. You do. Tell baby girl I said hi. Oh, you know, I'll do it right now. <laughs>